Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all on this Lord's Day where we get to worship our living God. And if you want to open up your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19, we'll begin there in a moment. So we've been going through this series that we've called Christ in All the Scriptures, and we've endeavored in this to try to show how the Bible is not compartmentalized. It's not this division of a bunch of different events that are totally isolated from one another, but it is a whole redemptive plan and purpose of God, that it is all focused on the person and work of Christ, that there's one plan of salvation, one means by which we might be saved, and it's through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we began all the way at the beginning, which makes sense to do that, to begin at the beginning, and we've gone through, and we're almost halfway through um, the covenants that we've looked at to try to understand how does God interact and deal with his people? How does he commune with them? How does he bring benefits to their souls? How does he establish relationship with them? And we've seen that it's through covenant. This is how God relates to his people is by means of covenant. And we've seen this is true not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And we started all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis. We started in the Garden of Eden. We looked at this covenant of works in the garden, that Adam was a creature made in the image of God. He was perfect in righteousness and holiness. He was called to obey God. He was called to obey his commands, obey his law perfectly, perpetually, And personally, he was called to guard and keep this garden that God had kept for him, that God had placed him in. And if he did what God commanded, if he obeyed, he would enter into glory. He would enter into eternal life. He would eat of the tree of life, and he would have everlasting Sabbath rest with God forever. He was commanded to do what God said, and he would have life. And so this is why we call this a covenant of works, that he was to do what God commanded, and God would give him the reward. He would earn what he had earned, which was eternal life with God. But as we know, Adam did not do this. (laughs) Adam failed. Adam failed. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did not do what God commanded. He broke God's covenant. And so as we read, the, the curses of this covenant fell on Adam not that Adam, <laughs> but all of, all of creation, right? Not just Adam in the garden, not just Eve, but all of creation was called and was taken to task for this sin that Adam committed. They were exiled from the garden. They were exiled from God's special dwelling place on the earth. They had violated this covenant. And to remember what God had did, he placed a cherubim angel with a flaming sword to protect this garden, showing that This was no longer a means by which man could be made right with God because of the sin of the world. But we also saw shortly after this that God promises to make a way in this covenant of grace that even in the midst of this curse and the curses he pronounces on the serpent and the woman and the man, God promises to send forth one born of a woman, the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, that will destroy Satan and all the effects of sin in the world. And this was obviously pointing to the work of Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, this promise of the seed of the woman. And so this promise is what we've tried to follow as we've gone through these other covenants. We've looked at the Noahic covenant, and we saw how God preserves his creation. Even though it's sinful and fallen, he's promised to preserve it until the day of judgment for the sake of Christ and his people. 
And we move to the Abrahamic covenant, which creates a people. where Abraham is given many promises by God of a land, of a people of many descendants. And we see that even though these have an earthly fulfillment in the land, we saw that they pointed to something greater and other than just Abraham's physical descendants, but they promised a spiritual land greater than the physical land, the new heavens and the new earth, and a people that were united to Christ, the seed not only of Adam, but the seed of Abraham that would bless the nations. And so this morning, hopefully that brings us all up to speed where we're at. This morning we're going to be looking at the old or mosaic covenant, the old or mosaic covenant, that now we find the people of Israel in slavery, in bondage, just like God had said would happen, we find the people there in bondage in Egypt. And we'll see this morning that God has not forgotten his promises, that he's not forsaken his people, that he has a plan of redemption that he is going to carry out, and he's going to do it and reveal his plan of redemption in this covenant, as he does in all of the covenants. And so it's important to remember this, that as we're going through the Bible, we're not just kind of looking at this information and saying, that's cool, or that's interesting, or look at this connection. This is God's plan of salvation that he's revealing progressively. He began in the garden. He's brought it to completion in the work of Christ. And so it's important that we see that all of this is not just random events, but it is the work of our triune God. And so we'll see this morning that God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He's going to give laws and a land to this people. But ultimately, we're going to see how this points the people and us to the finished work of Christ. That is the only way that we can be saved and made right with him. So I'm going to pray for us this morning after I read our passage in the book of Exodus. And we're actually going to look at a short passage in the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to begin at um, Exodus 19. I'm going to read several verses there. We'll turn over to Exodus 24 if you want to put your finger there. And then we'll finally look at one passage in kind of summary in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So this is the word of the Lord. Exodus 19 verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and sat before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now, if you turn to Exodus 24, we see this covenant that is kind of mentioned here. We see it formally inaugurated in chapter 24, this Mosaic covenant that God made with the people at Mount Sinai. We begin at Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it on the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're skipping a bunch of chapters and a bunch of books of the Bible, right? But we come to the end of the, the, of the kind of the book of Moses, this final kind of renewal of the covenant that's happened. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, we see a sort of summary of all that God has said in this covenant. And he says this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your holy and fallible word. We thank you for this revelation that you've given us to your people that nature is amazing. It declares the glory of God, but it cannot tell us how we may be saved. We need your word to tell us how we might be saved. Not only our need for a savior, but what Christ has done to save us from our sins. And so as we come to this um, passage in the Old Testament, in this covenant, we, we pray this morning that you would use your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit, that you would send power from on high to open the eyes of our hearts, unveil our eyes that we might see Christ today and be saved, and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We are weak, we are frail, we cannot do this on our own strength, and so we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, that you would cause us to see, and that we would see Christ. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to begin this morning, and we're going to look at what's happened since we saw last week. So we saw that God has this covenant with Abraham. He's promised him a land and a people that there'll be a great nation, but he's also promised that they're going to go into slavery for 400 plus years, and this is where we pick up with the people, the offspring of Abraham. We see in the book of Exodus, in this book, the second book of the Bible, we see that the offspring of Abraham are in Egypt. They're in slavery. They're in bondage under Pharaoh, and for over 400 years, they are oppressed 
by, we could say, the seed of the serpent, (laughs) the offspring of the serpent that is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And even though Pharaoh tries to snuff out these people, right, you remember he, he takes the firstborn or the male children and he tries to kill them, he tries to destroy the seed of the woman, God brings forth a deliverer through this. He brings forth a deliverer for his people by the name of Moses. And through a series of events that we don't have time to get into today, the burning bush and all these things, Moses is commissioned by God and sent to deliver the people from slavery in Egypt. He is the deliverer. He is the one that's going to bring the people out of Egypt sent by God. But ultimately, we know that it's God that's going to redeem his people. And this is to show them that they are helpless. In their bondage, in their slavery, they cannot save themselves. They need God to do this, and this is what we see in the great judgments in the book of Exodus. We see the the ten plagues. We see all these judgments that are brought on the people of Egypt, and in the final plague, God brings an angel of death to kill the firstborn children. But in the land of Egypt, for the people of Israel, God provides a substitute by this Passover lamb that by the blood applied to the people, death might pass over them. And many of us are familiar with this story. In this great final act of judgment, God brings his people through the Red Sea on dry, on dry land. He judges their enemies and he saves his people through this event that we call the Exodus. So we, what's the point of that? God is faithful to his promise. And God is faithful especially to his promise to Abraham that he's not going to abandon these people. He's not going to leave them in slavery. He is going to deliver them through this Exodus event that God has redeemed his people, and what we're going to see today is he's going to enter into covenant with them. Why is this necessary? Why is this happening? That's what we're going to talk about today. And how does this covenant not only look back on what God has done in the past, but also point us forward to what God will do through Christ? And so this leads us this morning to our second point, the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant as God refers to it. So if you want to follow along on your outline, you can see there we come to the second point, the Old or Mosaic Covenant. That the Old or Mosaic Covenant is the covenant that God made with his people, with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. That's what we read in Exodus 19. We saw this covenant making with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. God has saved them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He's remembered his covenant with Abraham, and he is going to bring them into the land that he promised Abraham. He's going to do it, and he is going to make them a great nation, but ultimately they will be the people that bring forth the Messiah, the Christ, the blessing from Abraham that blesses the nation, and that's what we saw in Exodus 19. We see really, in simple terms, this is what the old covenant is, is what we see in Exodus 19. God promises to be their God. They will be his treasured people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. If you look at Exodus 19, you can see these promises. God says, I will be this. But we also see that they are commanded to keep this covenant. They are to observe the commands of this covenant. They are to observe his voice, obey his voice. This is how they are to keep this covenant. And we don't have time to get into all this this morning, but if you turn one more chapter to Exodus 20, 
We see God also gives laws to this people. He doesn't just covenant with them. He gives them a law really as a covenant. We see this in the Ten Commandments. Many of us are familiar with these. The first four concerning the love that we need to have toward God, and the last six concerning the love that we should have toward our neighbor. So God gives this law, the law of God, He gives it to the people. And even though this law will go on to be expanded in the over 600 commandments we see in the civil and the ceremonial laws, these 10 commandments form the heart of this covenant. They form the core of this old or Mosaic covenant. And so we see God promises to be their God, to bring them into the land, but the people must keep the covenant. They must do this by keeping the law of the covenant, <laughs> the Ten Commandments. It's really not that simple. We're kind of making it, you know, it's, can, you can read the Bible sometimes and think, what's going on here? It's, it's really very simple at one level. And so in Exodus 24, we see this, this covenant formalized. We see it ratified. We see it, um, this oath ceremony, this covenant is ratified in blood. Some of you in your work might work with contracts sometimes where, you know, I work at an architecture firm and so we have to commission someone to do work for us or a consultant or someone has to do some work for us. And so we make a contract. We say this is what is going to happen. And the people agree to that contract and then that covenant is ratified. But it's usually by a signature, not with blood anymore. Okay? So uh, not at my firm anyway. Um, okay, but so this is what we see in one sense. This is what's going on. The law is read in Exodus 24 saying this is what must be done. The people respond. They agree. We saw that several times this morning. All that the Lord has said we will do. They're agreeing to the terms. And we see this ratified, not with a signature, but with a signature of sorts, this blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled on the people. It's, it's it's placed on them, and this is kind of an interesting picture. And we can say that this is sort of doing two things. It's showing both their purification, that they've been consecrated as a holy people, as a people of God's own possession, but it's also showing something that we even mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant, this idea of sanctions. That if they do not keep this covenant, what happened to these animals in being put to death will happen to them. And we saw that sort of summarized in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30, both the blessings and the curses, life if they obey, death if they break and violate this covenant. So this is the old covenant. If the people get, obey, they'll be blessed in the land of Canaan. And if they disobey, they will be cursed and they will be exiled. And so we have to say something really important here. And maybe some of your minds are already thinking if you've been with us since the beginning of this or listened to this online, we should start to hear something, an echo. Do you hear it? No. We should hear an echo in this covenant. And at one level, we must say that this older Mosaic covenant is echoing the covenant that we see in the Garden of Eden. Why do I say that? Because at one level, it is conditioned upon the obedience of the people. This was a type of a works covenant for life and blessing in the land of Canaan. Not for eternal life, not for glory. This wasn't promising eternal life, but earthly, temporal life in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. So we can say that this is echoing the covenant of works in the garden. Just like Adam was to work and then enter God's Sabbath rest, so the people of Israel must obey, and then they would enter the earthly rest in the land of Canaan. 
But at the same time that we have that thought in our mind, we should also feel a tension in our minds. What do I mean? We should feel this tension because we, we started at the covenant of works, right, with Adam in the garden, but we've seen God progressively reveal His covenant of grace, that He is not going to leave people in their sin, but He's going to bring about a Redeemer to save His people. And so, if this is a works-based covenant at some level, is this a step back in God's plan of redemption? Is this kind of God just saying, you know, Adam didn't work out, well, let's try it on a bigger scale at a bigger level with the people of Israel? Is this kind of like a do-over that God is saying? Adam didn't work, so we're going to try a different thing. And so you might be thinking in your head, what about God's promise of this covenant of grace? How is he going to reveal this covenant of grace through this principle? How is he going to send one that's going to accomplish salvation for God's people? Or as Paul will say in the book of Galatians, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary? Is it opposed to the promises of God? And the answer that Paul gives and that we need to give is certainly not. Certainly not. No. That in fact, the whole point of this covenant, the whole point of this arrangement was to point the people to their need for Christ, for the need of a Savior, for their great need that they had. That because of the fall into sin and because of man's sinful state, man is now utterly unable to enter God's presence. Man is utterly unable to save himself, to earn glory, to earn heaven. Man cannot keep God's holy and righteous law perfectly. And because of our sin, because of our uncleanness, we cannot enter God's holy presence. We are unable to in our sinful state. We need a perfect law keeper. We need a perfect obedience. And so no one can say after the fall, well, sin is not that bad. It's not really a big deal. It doesn't really keep us from God. It's just kind of a minor stumbling block, but we can overcome it. No, this is a giant picture of man's inability to save themselves. And Israel, as a nation, is kind of like a giant picture lesson of what happened in the Garden of Eden, except now there's sin involved. (laughs) Except now there's sin involved. That man can be given every earthly blessing, every great and God, and not godly, sorry. Man can be given every good thing on the earth, every comfort, every external benefit, just like Adam was given. But now, because of sin, those earthly benefits and blessings cannot change our souls. They can't make us right before God. They cannot cleanse us. And so this is showing us that the effects of the fall still remain. They're still present. And we see this most clearly maybe in Israel's breaking of this covenant through many points of its history. Whether it's Israel's idolatry in the golden calf that happens five minutes after (laughs) Moses brings down the law, they already start worshiping idols. They've already broken the first two commandments. They've worshiped another god and they've made an idol by which to worship. They've already broken the covenant five minutes after being given it. Or maybe it's the grumbling of the people, the wilderness generation that causes the whole generation that left Egypt to perish in the wilderness and to be cut off from entering the promised land. And maybe at an ultimate level, it's the exile not only of the people in the land of Assyria, but 
in the captivity in Babylon because of their disobedience. That man, in his fallen state, cannot obtain the righteousness of God. It cannot do it. And so, we can see these echoes of the Garden of Eden. We can see these echoes of this works principle that's operating. But even amidst this, we must see that God is continuing to reveal His covenant of grace. He's not stopped the plan of redemption. He is continuing to reveal His grace through this covenant. That God is not only holy and just, but He is also merciful and gracious. That God alone is the one that can make a way of salvation, the way of redemption. God alone is the one that can do this. And the only way this is possible is through atonement and substitution. And this is probably most clearly seen in the older Mosaic Covenant in the sacrificial system. In the sacrificial system. So we're going to look a little bit more closely at the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system that is shown to us there. That the question that's at the heart of the Scriptures and really the heart of God's um, revelation to us is how can a God who is holy, how can a God who is just dwell amongst sinful people? How can God's holy presence continue amongst people that are unholy? God is just. He cannot sweep our sin under this cosmic rug. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be atoned for. He is holy. He is just. Life must be accounted for. And so when we get to the sacrifices of this old covenant laid out in the book of Leviticus, in the priest, in the tabernacle, in the sacrifices of the old covenant, we see God illustrating something to his people in a very visible way. He's showing them something. He's not just doing this because for no reason. He's trying to show the people of Israel something, and it's namely this, the sinfulness of their sin and the purification and atonement that is necessary to enter God's presence. Because of their sin, because of their disobedience, they cannot attain the promise on their own. God has to give it by His grace, and He's showing them this, and He's showing them this through the sacrifices, that their sin is sinful. <laughs> it's wrong. It's worthy of being expelled from the promised land. But He's also showing them that He has made a way of atonement, a way of purification, a way that they can enter his holy presence. And so we see this in the priests, in the priests of the old covenant. We see the people need someone to represent them. They need someone to make atonement for their sins. We see this in the tabernacle, that in order to enter God's holy presence, you must be pure, you must be clean. We see this illustrated in all the numerous purity and cleanliness laws that Purity and cleanliness is required perfectly in order to enter God's presence. And we see this maybe most pointedly in the sacrifices. That the only way a sinful people can dwell amongst a holy God is by way of blood. And not just any blood, but the blood of a perfect, spotless sacrifice. This is the only way that they can enter God's presence. It's only by means of blood, but not just any blood, the blood of an innocent substitute. And this is what we see in the sacrifices. They must be pure. They must be spotless. And these sacrifices at their core were meant to remind their people, the people of their sinfulness. 
It was to remind them that this is what sin deserves, namely death. That that should be me on the altar. That's what my sin deserves. That's what is needed to be accounted for. It should be my life, not the life of this substitute. And yet, we see that it is not them being slain. It is not them on the altar. It is the substitute. It is the spotless sacrifice. And so it doesn't take a lot of work to see how this is pointing us forward and showing us the work that Christ would do, shadowing forth his person and work in vivid detail. It's, it's gory at one level, but it's meant to show us vividly God's covenant of grace, whereby true lasting atonement would be made. But we can also see how even though this covenant and its sacrifices could purify and cleanse externally, we find in the book of Hebrews that it could not cleanse the conscience. It could not purify the soul. That in and of itself, it could not deal with the heart issue. It could deal with a type of sin, a ceremonial uncleanliness, but it could not take away sins ultimately. One theologian says this, the Mosaic Covenant itself insists on purity, but it only grants outward purity. It insists on holiness, but it only grants outward ceremonial holiness. It only purifies the flesh. That this older Mosaic Covenant and these sacrifices could make the people ceremonially clean, but it could not purify their souls. It could make them clean at one level, but it could not purify their souls. And so this covenant and its earthly promises and blessings, its temporary sacrifices and priests, were not meant to be an end in and of themselves. They were not meant to terminate there, but they were meant to point us and point the people to the heavenly reality, <laughs> the heavenly reality of Christ and His covenant. That the earthly land the earthly people and the earthly sacrifices were real. <laughs> they, were not, they were not fake. They were real. God made real promises with real blessings in the land of Canaan, but they were always meant to point the people to something other than that. They were meant to point them to the substance. They were meant to point them not to the shadows, but that these shadows would pass away and give way to the substance. But as we look at Israel's history, we see that despite God's grace to them, despite his revealing many promises about what Christ would do, the people do not obey. They do not keep the covenant. And Deuteronomy chapter 4 actually predicts this. Moses predicts that this is happening. God ultimately predicts that he knows what's going to happen. We see that they continue to forsake God and the covenant that he made with them. They violate the laws. They break this covenant that God made with him. And just like Adam, the curses of this covenant fall on them. Hosea 6, 7 says, they, talking about Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. That these, these people of Israel will eventually be exiled. They will be put into captivity, and all the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28 will fall on them. Jeremiah chapter 3 actually tells us that God divorces Israel because they have been unfaithful to the covenant. They have broken and violated this covenant, and we see by the end of the Old Testament 
The only people that are left are the tribe of Judah. They are the only ones that have not been cut off. And so this is a very grim picture of our sin, our rebellion, and the wickedness of the human heart. And yet, when we go to the prophets, when we go to Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, we see that they are looking forward to a day when all that God has promised in the Old Covenant will come to fulfillment. That there is a day when God will make a new everlasting covenant that is not like the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, we read about this new covenant that is promised in the prophets. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." We see that in this covenant that is promised, God is going to write His law not on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. He is going to put His law within them. That all that are in this covenant will know the Lord. They will be taught by God. He will forgive their iniquity and He will remember their sin no more. This is what God is going to do. I will. I will. I will. And so this brings us to our third and final point this morning, the new covenant in Christ. The new covenant in Christ. That as we come to the New Testament, as we come to the new covenant, we see that what Christ is doing in His incarnation, in His sufferings, and in His glory is not something separated from the Old Testament. It's not a new plan of salvation. It is, in fact, the fulfilling of all that the Old Testament pointed to, that the shadows have given way to the substance. What do I mean? Christ has come to bring a new and greater exodus. He's come to bring His people not out of slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. Christ has come as the true Passover Lamb whose blood would be applied so that death might pass over His people. He's come as the better Moses who ascends not the earthly mountain, but the heavenly mountain of God as our eternal mediator and our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He comes not only as the true and better Adam to do all that Adam failed to do, but Christ comes as the true and better Israel, the true Son of God that after his baptism, resists temptation in the wilderness, defeats Satan, and perfectly obeys the law of God. 
never stumbling at any point. Israel failed at many points. Christ, as the true Israel, does not. And not only does he keep the whole law perfectly as our federal head, but he takes the covenant curses upon himself. That Galatians 3 tells us that he, that is Christ, became a curse for us on the cross. That on the cross, he became sin. He took the curse that we deserve. And that in this central moment of redemptive history, as the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb, is being lifted up on the cross, he becomes the perfect sacrifice and substitute that was needed to make his people clean. The sacrifice whose blood is not like the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin, but whose spotless blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The perfect spotless lamb that is secured for us an eternal redemption. And that's why the writer to the book of Hebrews can say this in chapter 8, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, because the covenant that he mediates is better. Why? Because it is enacted on better promises. That in this new covenant that was promised in the old, it was even participated in by the Old Testament saints, has come to final inauguration in Christ and in the new covenant. That God is the one who will act in the person and work of Christ. He will fulfill the law, and by His Spirit, He will write it on the hearts of His people, hearts not of stone, but of flesh. And that because of Christ's obedience to the whole law, in this new covenant of grace, obedience to the law of God is not a condition by which we need to obey in order to receive the benefits. It's actually a blessing of this covenant. Christ has obeyed. He has done the work and entered God's Sabbath rest. Now, because of what Christ has done, we obtain the blessings not by working, but by faith. Not by obedience, but by belief. That something is to be received, given, is this new heart with new affections that we actually want to do God's law. It's written on our hearts. And this is not only true of New Testament saints, but it's true of Old Testament saints, that they too were justified, adopted, and sanctified. That we receive this gift by faith, not by works. And that in the believer's heart, we, ha- we can say we have eternal life now, and we will have it in the future. And so this new covenant of grace that was promised in the Old Testament is retroactively applied to believers in the Old Testament, providing what it requires. This is the new covenant of grace. And so we need to say something important here. This is not saying that the, the writer to the book of Hebrews is not saying that there's no promise of Christ in the Old Testament, that there's no promise of the covenant of grace or what Christ would do in his covenant. By no means. We've seen all the ways that, these, that this covenant pointed forward to the work of Christ. It shadowed, it prefigured in many ways what he would do, and that it, even these benefits were communita- communicated to God's people in the Old Testament. But what we're saying is that the Old Covenant in and of itself could not take away sins. It could not cleanse the conscience. 
So what do, we, what do we need to take away from this as we step away and try to seek some application? Um, how do we apply this Mosaic covenant as we see its fulfillment in Christ? That hopefully what we see this morning is that the whole Bible from Old Testament to New Testament is about the person and work of Christ. It's all about what he's done. It's not like a plan A and a plan B. It is all about what God has done in Christ. The Old Testament promises, anticipates what God would do in Christ, and the New Testament says he's done it. It's finished. The work is complete. And we see this, not, this is not just my opinion, this is what Jesus says. He says, Moses wrote about me. <laughs> he's saying, the whole book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, are about me. Moses wrote of me. That What he says in the Sermon on the Mount is he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what do we, what do we read in Romans chapter 3 this morning? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This was promised in the law. It was, it was in the law, but it was pointing to something outside of itself, namely the righteousness of Christ. So we can see how the whole Bible is pointing to the person and work of Christ. And one other point of application I want to make this morning, this shows us how we need the gospel. We need the gospel desperately. We don't just need law, we also need the gospel. That under the law, as a covenant of works alone, we will always be crushed. Whether it's the people of Israel in the old Mosaic covenant, whether it's mankind under the broken covenant of works, or whether it's under anyone under the law of legalism, the law crushes in our sinful state. It shows us our sin, but we can't keep it. It shows us our frailty, and we cannot obtain it. And Galatians 3.10 is clear. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And so the law is like a magnifying glass. It shows us our sin. It shows everyone how sinful they are. It tells people that they have sinned. It reveals their sin. It exposes their sin. And so the law is good. Paul says it's good. It shows us our sin, but the law itself does not have the power to take away our sin nor the power to give us to obey it. The law says do, and we can't. It says obey, follow me, but we rebel. And so we see the whole history of Israel is like a giant picture of this, that we need something other than the law. We need something other than do this and live. We need the gospel, <laughs> which says live and do this, <laughs> that life has been brought to God's people, that the gospel both forgives our sin and gives us the power to walk in uprightness. It cleanses our conscience. It purifies our soul. It makes us right before God. The gospel alone is what justifies us. And I'll close with this poem that was written, I believe, by a Scottish Presbyterian. It says this, a rigid matter was the law demanding brick, but denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. <laughs> that the gospel alone gives us the power to not only obey God's commands, but be 
made right with him. Enter his holy temple. Enter his presence. That's the only way is through what Christ has done. He has entered the heavenly temple with the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption that won't pass away, that we cannot break or violate because Christ has taken the curse for us. He's done everything that you and I fail to do. He's done it all. And so we can have full assurance this morning. And we can close with what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his own flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why can we hold fast this confession without wavering? Because he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. He is going to do it. He's going to bring us to glory. He's promised it. He's covenanted to us that he would do it. And so we have assurance this morning that God is gracious. He will not only look on us in our sin, but he will look on us who have been united to Christ by faith. Let's thank him and praise him for his grace. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you this morning for all that you've done for us in Christ. That left in our sin and in our own devices, we could not be made right with you. That as we think this morning about the ways that we've broken your law, the ways that we've disobeyed, the ways that we knew what was right and either didn't do it or did the opposite of it. And so our, our consciences convict us. They accuse us. Satan himself accuses us of the ways that we've transgressed. He stands ready to accuse the people of God. But we thank you for Christ, the great high priest, who has clothed us not in filthy rags, but in the pure white garments of his righteousness. And so we can actually stand before a holy God, not in our righteousness, not by our works, but by the work of Christ alone. Help us to trust in this promise. Help us to trust in your faithfulness that you have promised it, you have completed it in Christ, and you will bring it to consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is our hope this morning. This is our hope. No matter how frail we might feel, no matter how much Satan and our sin accuses us, we have true lasting hope this morning that Christ has done it all and we can look to him by faith this morning and rest in his promises as we look forward to the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.